welcome to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. Broadcasting from the Morton studio, I'm Darren Hefty, joined by my brother Brian, who's out and about today. Boy, it is, it is above normal for weather here. Our temperatures are great, nearing record highs. Is there still stuff going on in the field, Brian? I was over in Minnesota yesterday and noticed you guys are out doing some tiling, still a little bit of fall tillage going on, a few fertilizer applicators still out in the field. You seeing anything today? Well, no, I'm not seeing a lot. I mean, most stuff is done. But, yes, people are still working on a variety of things. Where I was at in central South Dakota, it was 70 degrees today. So uh, just unseasonably warm, really ridiculously unseasonably warm, which is awesome. But, uh, yeah, I I don't know that I've seen a – well, I'll take that back. I've seen one or two people in the field in the about 300 miles or 200 and some miles I've driven so far today. So – but I do know there are a lot of people working and a lot of people have been telling me, hey, I'm still going to try to get this done. Like you said, tiling, a little bit of tillage, some manure going out. I saw somebody setting up this morning to put manure on. So, I mean, it's great that we have this opportunity. It doesn't come very often. I think back probably 15, 20 years ago, we had a December where in the middle of the month, we were able to put on anhydrous. I, and I had thought two months early, oh, there's no way we're never going to get our stuff done and then, for whatever reason, it warms up in December, and the ground was not frozen like it usually is, and we were good to go. The, the one really good thing about this happening right now is we've got the ground pretty open, and it's going to get real cold soon. So what happens sometimes is when you get these early snows when it's still warm, it insulates the ground, and I don't really like that because I want the frost going as deep as possible to kill insects, diseases, reduce my compaction, things like that. So I'm happy that so far we've had an open, I'm going to call it winter. It's technically still fall, but I always refer to December as winter. Yeah, it it certainly can be. Now, the the thing that I've had, Brian, come up the last few days has been people saying, well, it's really warm and we had a lot of bugs this year. And there's some bugs we don't really understand, like the soybean gall midge larvae, for example, what kind of difference does a warm fall and mild winter have for those bugs? Because common sense would say, well, survival should be better, but it isn't always better. Nope, it isn't. So we're just, as farmers, always playing the odds. Well, when you see things like this happen, when you have the late fall, you have, and we don't know how the winter is going to be. It could be really severe. But at least at this point, you have to be concerned that, hey, my bugs from this year might be sticking around to next year. But like I say, that's the reason why I'm hoping for no snow and then it gets really, really ridiculously cold before we get the snow. So then we get the frost down deep in the ground. But right now we have zero frost, so it's going to take some time to get her cold. Yeah, it sure it sure could. And you think about the disease this year, too, and things like tar spot that for a lot of farmers, they had tar spot for the first time this year, or maybe they had it the worst they've ever had it if uh, it's been around for a few years. When you think about some of these diseases, the great thing about winter is that it, it stops a lot of those diseases in their track and they've got to blow up back into the area. But there are other diseases that are going to stay once they're in the soil, once they're in the field and the residue, they're going to be 
there year after year. And even if we do get cold, I don't know that it necessarily degrades that that disease so much that that it's not going to stick around. But I know we saw things like stripe rust in the last oh, decade or so that started to overwinter in some of the milder winters in the north. So there there is potential there that that it could be a bigger disease year if we have a mild winter too. Well, I'd also say we had one of the driest stretches we've ever had in the last 18 months in our region of the United States. So chances are, that's not going to last forever. Chances are we're going to get back to normal rainfall. And when we do, then we're more likely to have disease again. So in what I was doing today is I was out talking to a group of farmers in central South Dakota. And one of the things I told them, because everybody's worried about having supply on ag chemicals. I go, guys, there's no problem with supply. No problem. They're like, what? We, we've been hearing the exact opposite. And I go, no, there's no problem with supply. Problem is the price. The supply issues are with 2,4-D, Roundup, and Liberty, and all the generics of those. Well, the, when the price is triple, then what happens with usage? Usage goes way down. So that's going to take care of the supply issues. So if you're willing to pay $35 an acre for Liberty, you're going to be able to get $35 an acre Liberty this coming spring. I'm not going to do it, though, for our farm. I'm skipping that. So anyway, where I was going with all this is we just don't know at this point because of the way the fall's been and winter and everything what we're going to have to spray next year, especially when it comes to the disease side of things. But we just have to be thinking at least ahead a little bit that, if we do get back to normal moisture, we, we might have more wheat problems. We, we definitely should see more disease issues. So we need to be prepared for that and start securing some product. So, for example, there's one of the manufacturers that I was talking to the guys about today that I'm expecting they're only going to have half the product they had last year. Now, fortunately, everybody else is going to have enough to make up for that. But, boy, if you've been using stuff from that manufacturer, you might be in trouble. I mean, in that you've got to switch products. The good news is there are lots of great products out there. So I don't care if we're talking herbicide, fungicide, or insecticide, whatever it is. We have so many alternatives in just about every crop. Yeah, there are a lot of alternatives, but anytime there's change, it always makes people nervous. And I think this is yep. one of those years where it's just going to take a little extra time with your agronomist, making sure that that everything is fully understood, that you aren't assuming, well, I always got control of this particular weed with this other herbicide. Now I'm switching herbicides. We can't forget about some of those weeds because everyone wants to talk about pigweed, but we sometimes forget about some of those other secondary weeds that could rise up right. and be a big problem. Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah, lots to talk about, and especially if you've got some of the newer crop pests out there. We're going to discuss those on today's program. Yeah, if you got something that's new, it's only been around for a few years, maybe you don't have a, a total handle on that just yet, and switching products could make you really nervous. So we want to talk about that today. We're also taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. We'll be right back after this. Weeds rob you of yield potential, so rob them of the chance to grow with powerful corn herbicide solutions from Corteva AgriScience. Weeds won't know what hit them, but you will. 
Because you can count on all the top corn herbicide products, including Resicor, SureStart 2, and Keystone NXT, to effectively control weeds, you can spend less time worrying about unwanted yield-robbing plants and power on. Learn more at poweroverweeds.com power. Keystone NXT is a restricted-use pesticide. Purchase your dream tractor and save your cash with can-do financing from Case IH. Save on the remarkably versatile Farmall, premium comfort Vestrum, and versatile workhorse Maxim tractors. Plus, discover amazing rates on high-capacity round balers and disc mower conditioners. Upgrade your equipment now and keep your cash flow strong next season. How can you make more profit from your soybeans this year? I'm Darren Hefty. We'll give you the answers to that question at a free Ag PhD Soybean Agronomy Workshop. It's Tuesday, February 15th at the Morton Center near Baltic, South Dakota. We'll dive deep on topics such as pest control, resistance issues, herbicide traits, and more. If you want to make raising soybeans more lucrative and fun, you don't want to miss the free Ag PhD Soybean Agronomy Workshop. Learn more at agphd.com. Are you combining around weed patches, waiting for weeds to dry down, or tired of spring burndown failures? Save time, nutrients, and moisture by including a Valor herbicide brand in your fall burndown program. Valor provides excellent residual control of tough weeds, including kochia, mare's tail, prickly lettuce, dandelion, plus suppression of bromes. Proactive, effective weed resistance management starts in the fall. Get a clean start for your next season with Valor Herbicide Brands. Always read and follow label directions. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We're broadcasting from the Morton studio and we're talking about newer crop pests. Now, I know when we say newer, well, what does that mean? Does that mean newer than two or three years, newer than 10 years, but it's just new to you. And sometimes it's a pest that's been around for a while, but all of a sudden it moves into a new area. And we definitely see that. Like for example, for us, Japanese beetles are something that even a few years ago, we really didn't see many of, but we're starting to see more and more in the area. And it's something that for farmers who haven't managed them before, they're curious about, well, what do I do? And what are my thresholds and, and what products are going to work the best to treat them? But you may be from an area that you say, wait a minute, we've had those for a long time. We know how to deal with Japanese beetles. Okay, well, it's not new to you, but what is new to you? We would love to hear about it. if you've got questions. Our phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD. Let's start off with Andrew Penny. He's a technical agronomist with DeKal Basgro. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Darren. I appreciate it. Good to be here. All right. So when I say newer pests, uh, I'm just thinking about your area. Is it is it gall midge larvae? Is it tar spot that that you're getting a lot of questions on? What are what are the popular ones right now? Yeah, you you nailed two of the three that I was going to talk about, and and you mentioned you know kind of one of the situations of of a newer pest that that I'm going to bring up in corn rootworm, and you know that that one specifically, it's not a new pest. But our management tactics and, and just some of the situations we're dealing with are definitely new to new to us here in Iowa. 
Well, no doubt about it. And when you have resistance with anything, and I know there's there's some level of BT resistance going on. There's also guys who have said, man, I have been in a corn and soybean rotation. I, I didn't think it was going to get to be a problem. But I, I always say, like, for example, in your area, I say, well, you're from the state of Iowa. There's so much corn in Iowa that, of course, those bugs are going to move around just a little bit. So is it a surprise for farmers or just a surprise they were this bad this year? I think it's a combination of both. You know, we have a year like we've had the last two years where we're kind of dry and, you know, problems with rootworm feeding and then, the you know, the noticeable symptoms are, you know, are just more prevalent due to that the drought conditions. And so, you know, a lot of growers aren't aware they have the populations of rootworm, you know, larvae and then the adults eventually in their fields. And, and so th- there's a lot of situations where, you know, just due to the drought, we're, we're just not familiar with uh, the populations we're dealing with. But, but there's definitely situations where, you know, we definitely are dealing with resistance. And I would say it's more of a combination of reduced susceptibility, you know, on, on top of just overwhelming populations. But, but it's like you said, it's, it's definitely a combination of the two. Yeah, there, there's a lot of stuff going on out in fields this year, and I, I think this is one that I was talking to farmers yesterday over in Minnesota that you can still dig up roots and see, oh, my goodness, what, what happened to the root system out there? Corn rootworm was a big yeah. deal. Uh, tar spot moving in. I know across southern Minnesota, I talked to a lot of growers that, that said, we're seeing it out here this fall, and it came late enough that it wasn't a major yield impact there. How about in Iowa? What did you see? Yeah, we had we had tar spot move in. You know, the, the eastern part of Iowa, obviously, you know, coming over from Illinois, um, took a little bit worse. I think as we get to the the border on the on the western side of Iowa, you know, it, it's not as bad, but you know, it, it's definitely moved in enough where you know inoculum levels seem to be increasing. And I can remember back in in 2018, I believe it was, when I was in uh, graduate school at Iowa State, tracking tracking the counties uh, that we you know confirmed tar spot in. And if I remember correctly, we confirmed it in most all counties up until, or up in, until a few, uh, you know, bordering counties uh, along Nebraska. But it, it's definitely, you know, the last two to three years, um, inoculum's increased. We haven't had uh, a year this bad um, since, you know, that 2018 year. So, you know, it, it, it's definitely a situation and, and something we need to discuss with growers as far as resistance, um, you know, scouting, uh, how, to, how to manage with, with a fungicide, you know, the, the proper timing. And the, there's just a lot to it. And, and on top of that, you know, it's a, a newer disease to the Corn Belt. And so, you know, there's a lot of universities still doing research on it. So we're just trying to keep up to date on, on the current research and, and management uh, tactics. You know, we know there's there's a difference with hybrids. Some hybrids handle it better than others, but it is so tough yep. with a, a relatively new disease because it doesn't just show up. And I think about how useful it's been to be able to inoculate plots just on a small scale with with a certain disease or another one like Goss's wilt I think about man as soon as we had yep. good inoculum that we could inoculate plots well then we could count on most times we're going to see some Gosses there and we can make an evaluation but this tar spot I've talked to a number of companies that put plots out where it's been a problem in the past and then oh we didn't have it here but a few miles down the road it was bad and and you just couldn't get a good read on things have you happened to luck out I shouldn't say luck out and in that way, but uh, luck out and get tar spot through one of your plots so you could really make good observations? You know, it, we have, but to, to your point, you know, we just haven't, you know, the university extension pathologists just haven't got a good way to 
you know, induce infection, you know, create, get that inoculum and, and create a situation where we get infection. And so when, when we're walking plots, you know, rating hybrids, it, it, it comes, it, it's, it's hard, even though, even though we might get it in one plot, it, it's hard to rate that current product because we can go to another plot and just do the environmental conditions, the inoculum levels, you know, you, you just have a lot of differences. So, so even when we do luck out and get it in a plot and, and think we can take good ratings, it's hard just because of the variability in, in the way that the pathogen infects and, you know, the, the different environments, the different locations. So it, it's, it's a, it's a tricky, tricky pathogen to, to try and, uh, you know, get a good ratings for right now. And until, until somebody gets a, a good way of, of creating that inoculum where we can guarantee infection. Yeah, I do know that we found out some hybrids that really don't work, and that that I can tell you. There's a few that I'd say, yeah, don't plant that one, but I can't really tell yep. you this one is going to be fantastic. What what a lot of the, the observations I've had have been, well, this one at least isn't any worse than the others, and the ones that completely fall apart would say to avoid. Uh, it's yep. not even that easy when it comes to soybean gall mitch, uh, that, that last pest. Now, this one, have you seen it get very far? east into Iowa or is it still mostly on the western side it, it is but you know I actually just had a, a conversation with a, a, an old colleague of mine that's an entomologist and uh, it, it does it still looks you know you can go on soybeangallmidge.org and, and kind of track that 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 pest and it, it does appear it, it's kind of sticking in the, in the western Iowa and I just noticed that it moved into the uh, one or two maybe, maybe three counties into into South Dakota but but for now it, it does it does appear to uh, be sticking on the west western part of Iowa and so you know I can I can remember back in 2018 uh, when when we first uh, you know kind of were learning about the soybean gall midge uh, I was in graduate school at the time and we went up to northwest Iowa which is kind of where we first found it and we thought we had a, a you know I, we we thought it was a disease because we had these wilted plants we didn't know what was going on. So me and me and some of the pathology crew uh, went up there and, and looked at a couple fields out there, and you know it, it took us a while to realize that you know we were we were dealing with something new, and so you know from then uh, you know from that time it's it's slowly moved south, and uh, I see there's there's numerous spots on the map uh, over in Nebraska, but it, it for for now in Iowa here it, it seems that it's like it's sticking on the west western side. Yeah, it's been an interesting past, and I know for some of our listeners that are that are outside the area where the soy, soybean gall midge larvae problem has been a big issue, they said, well, what do you see? And, and you mentioned a lot of people misdiagnosis as, well, it looks like a disease, but then you find out there's a bug inside the plant, and, and yep. you, you really start uncovering some things. What do you see for yield loss? What, what has it been? I've, I've talked to a lot of growers who said, well, I've gotten zero yield, but it was mainly the end rows that had zero yield. So across the whole field, you know, what I guess depend on, I would say maybe a 10% loss. What have you seen anything different than that? You know, I guess I couldn't speak too much on yield loss, but you know, when, when you look at these, the, the fields that are infected with, with the soybean gall midge, I mean, it, it does stick to those, you know, those boarding rows of, of field edges, waterways. Um, you know, it, it's just one of those situations where you, you can have certain fields that, that seem to be hot spots where, you know, those, those, those end rows, do get do get pretty impacted by by the soybean gall midge, and so, you know, in, in those specific spots, again, I probably couldn't give you a yield estimate as, as far as a loss, but you know, just looking at those plants, you know, it, it's pretty easily to to 
assume that you're losing a pretty good chunk of yield. Oh, yeah, no no doubt about it. We're talking with Andrew Penny here with the Calabasas. Andrew, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on today. Good luck as you head into the winter season. Great, Darren. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. You bet. Listening to Ag PhD Radio, we'll be right back. Morton Buildings knows that great buildings need great people, and we want you to be the newest member of our team. Morton is expanding its construction crew, and we're seeking new and experienced candidates to fill our crew member positions. Morton provides great pay and training, so be a part of the next generation to build Morton. Don't let the opportunity to join the best construction crew in the business pass you by. Learn more on our careers page at mortonbuildings.com. Precision crop nutrition pays. And AgroLiquid has precisely what it takes to help you succeed. The right products plus the right expertise to give you guidance based on your soils, your fields, and your goals. While our clean, seed-safe formulations and lower application rates make planter fertilizer easier than ever. AgroLiquid. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. How can natural products help you raise bigger and better crops? I'm Darren Hefty. In recent years, natural products have exploded onto the market claiming to improve soil health and plant development. But what's right for your farm? That's why we're devoting a full day to our first ever Ag PhD Naturals Workshop. It's Wednesday, February 16th at the Morton Center near Baltic, South Dakota. Our research team has spent years testing hundreds of natural products. We want to share with you what we've learned. For more about this free event, go to agphd.com. While you're there, check out other Ag PhD events we have coming up in January and February, including agronomy workshops in corn, soybeans, and wheat, a tiling clinic, two days dedicated to helping you understand soils and making your own fertility recommendations, and much more. There's great information here that we want to share with you. So to learn more about these events and register, go to agphd.com. There's a lot of great information here, and we can't wait to share it all with you. To learn more about these events and register, go to agphd.com. The first name and last word in weed control in heavier, higher organic soil types is Authority Edge Herbicide from FMC. This proprietary combination of actives outperforms the competition, delivering up to 14 more days of residual control. Visit your FMC retailer or ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow all label directions. Authority Edge Herbicide may not be registered for sale or use in all states. When it comes to commanding herbicide formulations, you know New Farm. New Farm brings you Panther SC, an animal when it comes to speed of control and long residual on a broad spectrum of tough broadleaf weeds like mare's tail, palmer amaranth, and water hemp. And did we mention convenience? Panther SC works in pre-plant, pre-emerge, and post-harvest systems and keeps your rotation options open. New Farm and Panther SC, here to help. Talking about newer crop pests on today's show. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, and our phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD. All right, uh, we've got Jeff Whitworth on right now, entomologist down at Kansas State University, to talk about some of these newer pests. Jeff, what's new down in Kansas? 
the warm weather. That's new and uh, <laughs> continued, and the dry weather. And you know, we wouldn't mind we wouldn't mind the warm weather if we had a little moisture to go with it. But I'll tell you what, we need some moisture bad. That's the main thing. Um, in the way of invasive species of insects, probably uh, the one you talked about just a little bit earlier. Um, the you know in the soybean gall midge, we don't have it. And we don't want it. But we yeah, I heard you put a wall up on the Nebraska border and you're forcing <laughs> those guys to keep it. We're doing our best to, to <laughs> keep everything out, yes. Uh, but we do have a little project that we sample and monitor for every year. And so far, the last two years, we've not found any. Now, you know, I mean, we probably have a few, just not enough to worry about yet. The other one that is slowly creeping into the state is the wheat stem sawfly, um, which again is seems to be a northern, you know, Colorado, Nebraska, or in the Dakotas kind of a pest in Montana and wheat. I'm sure we have it, but we haven't detected it yet in the state. So those are two that we uh, we, we have monitoring programs for um, that we haven't found yet, and we don't want them. But probably the most recent uh pest problem we had is a sugarcane aphid in sorghum. Um, that came in in the very tail end of 2014, 2015, 2016. It caused havoc in the sorghum uh, production throughout the, the state. And, you know, anytime you get an invasive species like that, it's it's kind of, it's new to the beneficials, the the populations that generally help control some of these things. Um, it's new to the growers. It's new to the researchers. Um, so it takes a little while to figure out, or maybe you never do, to figure out what to do, uh, how to manage it better. So since 2017, 2018, I think we've done a better job managing sugarcane aphid populations all the way in the southern part of Texas where they overwinter because they don't over, they're a tropical aphid. They don't overwinter in Kansas, or at least they haven't now. You know, maybe if this, this weather continues, they may start, but um, they overwinter in the southern part of Texas and come in every year on southern winds, and, oh, probably in July, August, that type of thing. So it takes them a while to get going, but we've really learned how to manage them, I think, pretty well. Now, one of the insects that's still very problematic in Kansas and Nebraska and Dakotas that is native here, but it's native in sunflowers, is the Dectes stem borer, and it has transitioned over to be an invasive species in soybeans. And in Kansas, it causes more problems in soybeans than it does in sunflowers. As a matter of fact, we monitor sunflowers every year, and you find very few Dectes stem borers in sunflowers, but the soybeans can be you know, 60 to 80 percent infested, and they they really wreak havoc on the stems of the of the soybean plants. So that's one another reason why we don't want the um, you know soybean gall midge because we have dectes and that's that's causing a lot of problems. And we and well, we don't want any more pests. Period. But <laughs> well, it makes your job interesting, though, aphid. Jeff. It, yes, but you know what? My job's interesting enough um, the way it is. So uh, the sugarcane aphid's the most recent. The other aphid we had in soybeans is the soybean aphid. Again, that transitioned in from the north. 
Um, we still get that every year. Uh, comes in on the northern winds and usually midsummer. Um, we find it every year. Just since probably 2010, we've not had. Well, we've not had a real problem with it, or we haven't had to have very many acres treated for for soybean aphids. So those two aphids really are the. I'm trying to think. Those are probably the most recent recent invasive ones that have transitioned into Kansas. And like I said, most of our pests come from invasive species way back when. Hessian fly on wheat, that's still a problem. It invaded back in the 1800s. European corn borers on corn, that's pretty much being taken care of now, but that was the main problem on corn. That's why BT corn was developed. And so invasive species can really, really cause problems for the main reasons is we don't know much about them when they get here. It takes three or four or five years to, to, you know, run through the science on them to do the testing and make sure it's repeatable and get the beneficials and the beneficials figure out what they can do. And, you know, it's just, it just takes a while. So, We've been lucky. Like I said, the two we're really monitoring for now is the, um, uh, the wheat stem salt fly and the uh, soybean gold midge. And, and as of right now, I've not had any reported in any um, major way throughout the state. Now, one thing that is a little bit concerning, you mentioned a couple different species of aphids. And I know in Minnesota, they've had some pyrethroid resistance developing up there with the soybean aphid. Uh, have you seen anything in sugarcane aphid? Have they had any issues? And then also uh, along those lines, what have you seen out of some of the new products like Safina and Transform that are aphid-specific type products? And then is it a big loss with Lorsban? If we don't have Lorsban available, will that hurt us? <laughs> Those are all really good questions. <laughs> the um, the aphid-specific products work really well. Um, I tested them just this year on pea aphids and alfalfa also, so uh, it's not as big a market. So the companies are, you know, once they once they test them on the larger markets, green bugs, sugarcane aphids, uh, if they work, then they start looking for other markets. So we we tested some on pea aphids this year, and they worked really well. I haven't even given the companies the results yet, so uh, they'll be interested to hear that. Um, they they they're really less harmful to beneficials. And like I said, they work really well on the aphids. As far as losing lures ban, from a practical standpoint, it's it's from a pest management practical standpoint, I don't think it's gonna it's gonna impact us that much. From the growers standpoint, because they've all been, you know, complaining about the loss of lures ban, it's a cheaper product, it's more of a general use product. They have it around. It's easy to get a hold of. They're used to it. You know, a lot of growers, they and others, me included, you know, we like what we're used to. We don't like change. Um, so from a practical pest management standpoint, I don't think it's going to affect anything. From a grower, cooperator perspective, um, it's going to cost probably a little more, maybe, uh, and maybe they have to look a little harder to find a little more specific product to use than um, for pyrophos or lower span, but I, I, don't, I don't think it's really going to hurt the, the industry any. 
All right, last question for you. We got about a minute left. You mentioned the warm and dry weather you're getting. What about winter survival with bugs? Is it just way too early to tell, or is this making a difference that bugs could be even worse next year? Uh, you know, I get that question every year in the spring or after winter. If it's a really cold winter or a really warm winter, um, everybody wants to know what that does to impact the pest populations or the insect populations. Really and truly, it doesn't. This time of year, it doesn't matter. I mean, the insects that are overwintering, they're, you know, they're already adjusted. They've been in Kansas, and they've gone. We we went back, and we have the weather data from 1895 through 2018, and you can see all different kinds of weather in, in the winter, you know, warm, cold, over that 115 years um, or 120 years, whatever it is. So they're well adjusted. Now, when it comes into the late winter, early spring, if we get a really warm spell and they break uh, diapause or hibernation, and then we get a cold spell, that, that can impact them. But generally from the first part of November to the last part of March, warm, cold, it, it doesn't impact them because they've, they've adjusted over the many years that they've been around. I mean, insects have been around a lot longer than people, and they're going to be around a lot longer than we are, you know. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, I think you're right about that. They are going to be around for a long time. Talking to the great Jeff Whitworth from Kansas State. Jeff, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Looking to upgrade your productivity now and take control of your cash flow next season? Check out CanDo Financing on Case IH Tractors and Hay Tools today. Discover amazing rates on the remarkably versatile Farmall, Premium Comfort Vestrum, and versatile workhorse Maxim tractors. Plus, save on high-capacity round balers and disc mower conditioners. Make this season your most productive yet. Boost your productivity and profitability with Soil Warrior from Environmental Tillage Systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and your yield potential in just one strip-till pass. Now that's ROI. Contact us today at SoilWarrior.com. Conditioning low-moisture beans to 13% can add semi-loads to your bottom line. And with our 13 for 13 year-end special, make 13% beans possible with 13% off an end-zone bin system. Use promo code 13 for 13 at farmshopmfg.com. Winter is here, and that means it's the perfect time to improve your farming operation by attending Ag PhD's winter workshops and clinics. Hi, I'm Darren Hefty. My brother Brian and I are hosting a bunch of free workshops throughout January and February, with each event focusing on different subjects that all help you make more money on the farm. On January 11th, we start off with a wheat agronomy workshop, followed by two days dedicated to understanding soils and cutting fertilizer expenses. Then on Monday, January 31st, we're dedicating a whole day to drainage and the benefits of tile, followed by our corn agronomy workshop on February 1st. Finally, we'll be discussing soybean agronomy on February 15th, with the next day fully devoted to learning about one of the newest developments in increasing yields across the country, natural and biological products. We have a lot of great information on how to improve your farm, and we can't wait to share it with you. Best of all, all these events are free, so be sure to check them out. Learn more and register at agphd.com. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. 
To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. Heat, drought, wind, hail, northern corn leaf blight, gray leaf spot. If your corn is under stress, you are too. Get Veltima fungicide, swift activity, with fast payback, an expanded application window. Makes life simple, and it's the secure choice. With powerful residual for visibly healthier corn. Swift, simple, secure. Veltima fungicide. Call your BASF rep today. Always read and follow label directions. Veltima fungicide is not registered in all states. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. Broadcasting from the Morton studio, talking about some of the newer crop pests out there. And Jeff Whitworth with Kansas State was just on. He brought up Dectus stem borer, that it's moved into a different crop. And now it's been more of a problem in soybeans than historically it had been in sunflowers. I also mentioned wheat stem sawfly moving into that area and sugarcane aphids. Andrew Penny wanted to talk about soybean gall midge. Uh, he talked a little about tar spot as well and and the increasing populations of corn rootworm in his area. Got Dominic Rizek on right now with North Carolina State. All right, Dominic, what what are the newer pests in your area? Well, hey, Darren, nice to speak to you. Um, I would say over the past 10 years, we've seen increasing issues with piercing sucking insects. Uh, we have a pest in cotton called ligus or tarnished plant bug that's really increased kind of both across the state in terms of abundance and causing us issues on the crop. And then in corn, we've seen more problems from stink bugs. Um, so, you know, same thing, both in, you know, abundance across the state and, and, and yield, you know, in terms of yield loss as well. All right. The stink bug issue is is definitely a, a rising problem, and it's one where, like on our farm, for example, we, we always see a few stink bugs, but we haven't seen some of the, the tougher species of stink, stink bugs. We a lot of times have green stink bugs up here. Uh, which particular stink bugs are you seeing in North Carolina, and which ones are the toughest to get? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a mixed bag. We've had a number of mild winters in a row. Um we really need temperatures to get down consistently in the teens for a number of nights in the rows to knock back southern green stink bug. We haven't seen that in the past few winters. So we've seen a lot of issues from southern green stink bug in corn, uh, about an equal number to brown stink bug. Um, it's a pretty similar uh, species to the one that occurs in the Midwest. Ours is Euschistus cervus, and they have one called Euschistus variolaris there. Uh, but But really... Lately, we've been seeing about 50-50 issues in terms of those species on corn. Sure, sure. All right, so what makes stink bugs so difficult to get under control? They're really difficult because they're hard to sample. Uh, most growers aren't used to sampling corn anyway, um, so we've had to train them on the fact that you do have to sample for stink bugs. And then even if you can convince them to scout themselves or to, to use a scouter consultant, they're difficult to find. Uh, they're real cryptic, hard to find. They tend to be spotty in the field. They're not uniform. Uh, and then there's parts of the field that scouts can't reach. So all of these issues make finding them difficult. We have really good ways to control them. We have insecticides that work. Unfortunately, it's one class, the pyrethroids. Um, the issue we have is making sure that we deliver the insecticide to where the stink bugs are. So I would say our main problem in the state is 
just prior to tasseling when the ear is pushing out. You know, a lot of those cells haven't fully divided, and the stink bug will, will pierce through the, the stem of the plant, damage those cells before they've divided, so the ear will come out misshapen. And to reach those stink bugs at the time, we have corn that's rapidly growing, and it's difficult to penetrate the canopy with insecticides and reach the stink bugs. Yeah, coverage is sometimes a challenge, especially on bigger crop. Uh, one other thing I was thinking about in your state, Dominic, is double crop. I talk to farmers all the time in your area that say, well, I'm doing a double crop here. Does that make it tough, too, when you just constantly have something out there for them to feed on? Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, I would say in general, um, the, the cropping system, as you pointed out itself, is is something that's like an intractable problem. If we think about stink bugs and double cropping, they use wheat as an early season host. And so when growers go in there and pick wheat and they're going to move to whatever closest available foods in the environment. Sometimes that's corn, uh, soybeans or whatever else. So you're right. It does, it does make it difficult having something growing all the time in the field. And even the double cropping system is even uh, hard on the soybean side because after the wheat is planted, growers are planting soybeans. Those are often harvested really late in the season. And those late planted soybeans become green islands for stink bugs. So after everything else is harvested in an environment, they go to those late planted soybeans, build up pretty significant populations late in the season that aren't necessarily causing problems on the soybeans, but those stink bugs go into overwintering and causes problems the next year. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a big issue out there. And I know I talk to a lot of growers that say, man, if I see any bugs, I just want to kill them because I know it's going to be a bad situation for me going forward. How about with ligus or, or tarnished plant bug? What are you seeing with those pests and, and why did they why are they so difficult for farmers? Oh, they're tough critters. Um, they're difficult because they, um, they, they show up in numbers throughout the season that are sort of unpredictable. So sometimes we get them real early, sometimes we get them in the middle of the season, sometimes we get them late, sometimes we get them all season long. Like the stink bugs, they're really mobile, they're spotty in the field, and they're just damaging because um, the way that they, they damage the plant, so cotton is indeterminate, and a, a ligus or tarnished plant bug will feed on the square, which is a pre-floral bud, and the plant's response to that is just to drop the square. And the, the problem is we need that square to make a flower, to make a bowl. And so just a few insects can cause really big problems in your field. And the other issue is that they're pretty difficult to control with insecticides. Uh, part of it is mobility. Part of it is just tolerance to the insecticide, um, their reproductive uh, capabilities. So we really have to keep on top of them early and often if we want to do a good job of managing them. You know, Dominic, we were mentioning double crop earlier, and I've talked to a number of farmers that have switched their cropping practices and have worked a cover crop into the the operation and have been really happy with what kind of impact that's made on the soil. The one challenge that I hear from growers is, hey, man, it's helped keep weeds down. It's been so good keeping the soil in place. But the one challenge they've had is I've got more bugs than I've ever had before. Are there certain bugs that you're seeing hanging out or thriving in these cover crop situations that are becoming more of a challenge? I would say the challenge is the unpredictability due to the the impact of the environment with the cover crop with you know what whatever else you have going on out there in terms of bugs 
you know, the cover crops the growers are planting is not just one thing. A lot of times we'll see multi-species mixes and, you know, that interacting with the environment and the bugs makes predictability really difficult. I think in some cases they're really beneficial. They can harbor beneficial insects. Um, some crops that are planted into cover crops can make the crop more difficult to see. So they're less at risk for uh, insects that may attack the seedling. But in other times, as you say, they are sort of breeding grounds or green bridges for pests to hang out in the cover crop. The grower terminates, plants into that, and the pest just jumps right on the the, uh, the crop. We've seen some problems, for example, with uh, three-cornered alfalfa hopper uh, building up populations in cover crops and moving on to soybeans and, and destroying stands, for example. Yeah, it's been interesting. Anytime you make one change in a rotation or a farming practice, you've got to look at what all the implications of that could be. And different insects coming in can can certainly be one of those things. We're talking with Dominic Rizik down at North Carolina State University. Dominic, we're talking about newer crop pests. You mentioned stink bugs. You mentioned ligus or tarnished plant bug. Uh, those Those are no fun. I don't like them. I would suggest you keep them in North Carolina. <laughs> well, I, I don't like them either, but it, I guess there's, there's one thing for sure. I'm going to be in a job. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I need to do my job better and eliminate them. But that's a it's a tough, tough, tough hill to climb. Yeah, I think when we were kids, we were talking to our dad all the time. We'd be out in fields hand pulling weeds, and and dad said one thing about it, guys: if you're good at pulling weeds, you got job security. And here we are, 50 years later, still talking about uh, weed control and and insect control and these types of things out in fields. But there are always some newer ones that come along, so you got to keep scouting and got to keep up on the newest information. Really appreciate you, Dominic, being on the show today. Thanks for what you do, and and good luck here heading into the winter season. It's been a pleasure. Same to you, Derek. All right. So talking newer crop pests, and we've got our phone lines open, too. If you've got a new one or, or a new-to-you uh, pest that you're facing, it's 844-44-AG-PHD. If you'd like to talk about that, share what strategies you're using, what's working or what's not working out there on the farm. And we, we've gotten a number of questions that have come in via email as well. You can email us a picture or a question too. It's radio at agphd.com. We're going to dive into the Ag PhD radio mailbag coming up right after this. Are you combining around weed patches, waiting for weeds to dry down, or tired of spring burndown failures? Save time, nutrients, and moisture by including a Valor herbicide brand in your fall burndown program. Valor provides excellent residual control of tough weeds, including kochia, mare's tail, prickly lettuce, dandelion, plus suppression of bromes. Proactive, effective weed resistance management starts in the fall. Get a clean start for your next season with Valor Herbicide Brands. Always read and follow label directions. Did you know soybean diseases like white mold and sudden death syndrome can survive in your soil even after rotating crops? Prevention of these diseases is a constant battle and yield loss from an infection can be devastating. The right management plan makes all the difference. Keep your beans safe with Heads Up Seed Treatment. Heads Up guards your seed from both white mold and SDS. Stay protected and profitable by asking your seed dealer for Heads Up. Learn more at headsupst.com. What can you do to build a better wheat crop? I'm Darren Hefty. On Tuesday, January 11th, we're holding a free Ag PhD Wheat Agronomy Workshop at the Morton Center on our farm near Baltic, South Dakota. 
We'll be discussing how you can make your wheat crop more profitable by going in-depth on topics such as crop protection programs, seed treatment options, fertility requirements, and ways you can make your crop more resistant to stresses like drought and disease. We'll be covering all this and more, so don't miss the Ag PhD Wheat Agronomy Workshop. Sign up today at agphd.com. And while you're there, check out the other Ag PhD events we have coming up in January and February, including agronomy workshops in corn and soybeans, two days dedicated to soils, plus a whole day devoted to natural and biological products. There is a lot of great information here, and we can't wait to share it with you. To learn more about these events and register, go to agphd.com. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. We now bring you an important news bulletin. This just in from Live Action News. Innovation has come to the world of Burndown. New Elevore herbicide controls your toughest weeds, even glyphosate and ALS-resistant weeds like mare's tail and henbit. Talk with your retailer about Elevore herbicide today and ask how you can start elevating your burndown. Back, you're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We've been talking about some of the newer crop pests around the country and mentioned quite a few tough ones there that, that uh, boy, I hope you don't have all of them on your farm. But if you do have some of them, hopefully you got some good information on stink bugs, uh, ligus or tarnished plant bugs, sugarcane aphids and soybean aphids, soybean gall midge larvae. Uh, wheat stem sawfly, dectus stem borer. Boy, these are these are some toughies out there. So there are a lot of different pests. If you see something new on your farm, if you've got questions, we're always happy to help. It's 844-44-AG-PHD if you want to call us, or you can just email us, radio at agphd.com. Let's head to the Ag PhD mailbag. Now we've got a number of questions that have come in. It's the mailbag. All right, I'll bring Brian back on here, too, uh, to talk through some of these things. First of all, Brian, I get a fertility question for soybeans. Uh, this is from Clayton in northern Illinois. He said, I got some questions for you for 100 bushel soybeans on the Ag PhD fertilizer removal app. It says you'll need 435 pounds of nitrogen. So if a plant makes 70% of what its needs are, I'll still need another 130 pounds. But I've heard if you put too much nitrogen on, the soybean plants can get a little bit lazy and potentially yield less so what would be the best timing to deliver excess nitrogen and just kind of curious what what your thoughts are okay so a couple of things first of all no the soybean plants aren't going to yield less we've put on hundreds of pounds of nitrogen for soybeans and they yield fantastic so that's not a problem The, the concern is just will your your soybeans be able to get enough nitrogen when they need it for really high yield so the two times where we typically talk about this, it, adding more nitrogen to soybeans, it's number one, if we're going for really high yield, 
and or number two if we have really low soil organic matter because the one thing you didn't factor into this equation you said the 70 percent and and we'd agree with that on average if things are good but you got to think about how much nitrogen comes out of your soil's organic matter so for example on average on our farm we probably have four percent organic matter so we usually figure 20 pounds or so on the low end of things for every one percent so that means 20 times four is 80. so we're going to get 80 pounds of free nitrogen out of our soils and then the other thing you have to account for is how much nitrogen did you carry in the average on our farm this year is 100 pounds or more carried into the next year so if i got 100 pounds there i got 80 pounds coming from the organic matter and the plant can produce 70% of its own nitrogen needs, I don't need to add any, and I could still get 100 bushel beans. If you want to try some nitrogen, we're all for that, because who knows, maybe it'll help, maybe it won't. The best timing is usually right at potting. So late flowering, early potting, that's usually when we're going to tell guys, throw some extra nitrogen on and give that a shot. All right. Thanks for that question. Got this one from Brandon, and he's following up on a question that he had last week. He said, I, I, I'm trying to figure out this phosphorus topic here. And when you look at the weak bray test or P1 test, what people normally are assuming is that you're going to access almost 100% of that. Is that a safe Correct. bet? And if you're yep, putting a small amount there. banded with the planter, would you expect you'd catch most of that band as well? And then he's got a couple other questions too. Okay. So first of all, there's a difference between it being available and you actually being able to use all that today. Because the thing is, is it all available today? You bet it is. It's a weak bray test. That's available right now. The problem is if your roots don't explore 100% of the soil, which they won't, you're not going to extract 100% of that phosphorus. With a band, then you've got a much, much, much greater chance of extracting most of that. So that's why we talk all the time about the advantage of banding versus broadcasting, at least in the short term, because in the short term, like this year, in one season, you'll be able to pull more phosphorus out percentage-wise of that band versus out of your broadcast. Okay. And then the other questions that Brandon had, he said, so if I'm looking at a soil test and it says I've got 16 pounds of sulfur or a pound of boron, is that also available for my crop or how much of that do you think I'll actually access? Those are nutrients that move around in yep. the soil. Yep. Those are available, but yeah, he's right. It, it can move around in the soil. So let's put it this way. If you get 30 inches of rain in a light soil, a lot of that's gone. Um, but if you get no rain and or, and or if you have a heavy soil, then you're probably going to get most of that. But again, it depends on what percentage of the soil the plant is plant roots are able to explore. So even there, banding can help a little. Now, it doesn't help as much as it does with phosphorus and potassium banding I'm talking about because sulfur, nitrogen, or let me rephrase this, sulfate, nitrate, and boron will move in soil solution. So they can move sideways, they can move up, they can move down. So you've got a much better chance to get those into your crop roots than you do P and K, even in a broadcast situation. But yeah, we, we don't know exactly how much your plants are going to be able to bring in. It depends a lot on where it is, soil moisture, how healthy your plants are, how big the root systems get, how much compaction you have, how much heat there is. 
I mean, how many microbes are interacting with your plants in the soil? I mean, there are a lot of things that play into this, but what what shows up in the test? Yes, it's available today. It's just a question. Will your plants get it? All right. Speaking about fertilizer, again, another fertilizer question. This one comes in from George, and he said, I'm banding in a three-by-three three on both sides of the row. I'm wondering how much potassium I could safely put out there. We'd like to use dry 0060, blend it with some MAP and urea in a no-till system. Okay, this is a real judgment call, and I, I, I'm sorry that I can't give an exact, exact answer, but there just flat out isn't an exact answer because it varies with the, the weather conditions and the soil conditions. So the heavier your ground, the more you can put out there. The more rainfall you have, the more you can put out there. And then also some plants are just going to be a little more tolerant than other plants, like corn is a little more tolerant than soybeans. But I will say we've done that where it's been three by three or maybe I'd probably call it four by four. We did that for a few years with dry fertilizers quite a while ago. And I didn't have any real big issue putting 100 pounds of dry fertilizer out there, even 200 pounds, and we actually got by with it just fine. So what's the maximum? I, I, I can't answer that for you. But I would say this. You want to always be a little bit on the conservative side because what we worry about is the drought year. On the drought year, then all of a sudden things are going to go bad because salt is going to hurt you a lot more on the drought. The problem with this is we don't know when the next drought year is coming. So for us, it was 1988, and then since 88, it went all the way to 2012 before it got really bad again. Well, guess what? Pretty darn bad again. So we just, we don't know. Um, but th those are the things that I'm looking at. All right. Thanks for the question. I get this one from Keith in southeast Minnesota, and he said we planted we planted soybeans in a field in 2020. We we were very low on our inputs. Didn't use a seed treatment. No fungicide. One pass of chem, and we lost about half of our yield to shattering. The bean pods just opened up, dumped the beans on the ground. Now we thought it might have just been been from the beans getting too dry so we made some changes this year we put beans back in the same field switched varieties did a seed treatment inoculant fungicide insecticide and watched really closely to make sure we harvested the field at 13 percent moisture we still had some shelling but this time we only lost about 15 percent of the yield now our local retailer just keeps blaming the seed and doesn't seem too eager to look at the issue what do you think is causing this problem again keith is in southeast minnesota yep i'll almost guarantee you the problem is fertility you got to get your k levels up to at least four percent if not higher you want to take a look at your copper levels. I want those at least at two parts per million. Um, you want your manganese levels up too, but I mean, it's it's probably potassium and or copper that are most likely causing those problems. Yeah, I look at it too. Drought stress is definitely a big factor when it comes to shatter loss. And also if you have drought and then you catch a late season rain, and I'm not exactly sure where in southeast Minnesota you are, but I know there's some areas where it's pretty dry and it was pretty hot, and all of a sudden there's a lot of fall rain. That can definitely be a factor in this. So I'd take a look at that. One other thing that we've noticed the last couple of years has been spider mites, where there's more spider mite feeding, we sometimes see more disease like anthrax 
anthracnose getting into the plant. And when we've got anthracnose, we a lot of times see uh, twisted up bow tie looking pods that have shattered and dropped all the beans on the ground. So give you a couple of ideas of, of what you could look for there, Keith. Uh, and I agree with Brian, I do soil test and see what the fertility is as well. Thanks for listening to our show today. Be sure to join us each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.